Okay, let's uh, turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We'll just remain standing for this reading, and then I'll pray, and then you may be seated. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you that yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who, who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Our Father, we know exactly how you feel and what you think of insincerity, of hearts that are not for you, but against you. We read that, Lord, this morning, reminded from Isaiah's prophecy, from your word. And now, Lord, may you teach us your word. May you change us forever. You, Lord, are the God of truth the God of light, the God of righteousness and holiness, and you've brought a people to yourself. May you sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. May you see it. Well, brothers and sisters, here we are in Romans chapter 2, and <clears throat> last week Paul began to examine um, the Jew, uh, this one who is self-righteous, who is outwardly religious, and who has great privileges. And we read that in verses 17 through 20. And we saw really three marks of the self-deceived, outwardly religious person. We saw, firstly, that they are those who profess but do not possess. They profess to be Jews, and as you might recall, Jew comes from Judah, which means praise. And so God's people are meant to be praised, praised by him and to praise him. These, however, profess the name only. They don't possess the substance. And we saw, secondly, that their motivation is about self-exaltation, not about exalting the Lord. Uh, they are those who say and do the right things outwardly, but their hearts are far from the Lord. Inwardly, the motivation is self-aggrandizement because they have a hard and unrepentant heart. And we saw thirdly that they have the form of religion, but they have no substance. They have the form of godliness, as Paul says, but they deny its power. They take credit for the power by trusting in their own abilities, their own strength, rather than in the Lord. And their whole understanding of Scripture really is a superficial one. It is all about completing the letter of the law, 
while neglecting the spirit of the law. And so after these dangers of self-deception, we now come to verses 21 through 24, where Paul puts some very pointed questions to this righteous, self-righteous Jew whom he addresses. And the question that he asks, or the questions that he asks, and the question for all of us this morning is really this. Why is it necessary that we self-examine? Why is it necessary that we self-examine? And I'd like to give you three reasons, three points. The first is the hypocrite always fails to self-examine. We'll see that in verse 21. Hypocrites do not self-examine. It's not part of their practice. Number two is it's very possible to keep the letter of the law while breaking the spirit of the law. It's possible to keep the letter but break the spirit of the law. We'll see that in verses 21 and 22. And then third is the honor of God is at stake. The third reason why it's important, necessary to self-examine is because the very honor of God is at stake. And that's in verses 23 and 24. And I think this morning we will probably just cover the first two points. So let's begin. The first reason why we must self-examine is this. The hypocrite always fails to self-examine. Look at verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? So starting with teach, you teach another. Teach, we saw this word um, a little earlier in this chapter. Teach means, uh, is the word, the Greek word, didasko, and it means master. It's the word that the Jews use for rabbi. And what do we know about a teacher? Well, he's one who teaches because he's learned the principles himself. He's first learned the principles and then he's able to teach others. No one can fill another one's cup, so to speak, if they have no water in their own cup, right? So, and this is probably a point that um, all you homeschool moms know really well, right? You've got to learn the material before you're able to dispense it to your children. And it's a blessing, isn't it, to learn the material? It's a blessing to teach because we learn the material ourselves. All teachers, rabbis included, must be taught before they can teach. And we saw this last week in chapter 2, verse 18, where we're told that these Jews were instructed out of the law. Instructed. Uh, the word is catechized. They learned line upon line, precept upon precept. They knew the law well, but their blind spot was they didn't teach themselves. Why do you suppose that that is? Well, it's for the same reason that the person who's well has no need of a physician, a doctor. A person who doesn't feel that he's sick and sinful has no need to self-examine because he thinks he's basically fine. He trusts in himself. He trusts in his ability to do what is right. He trusts in his ability to keep the law in the case of the Jews in the aberrant uh, wrong way that we described last week. He keeps the letter, but he ignores the spirit. So he teaches others, but he never teaches himself. And this, loved ones, is always the mark of the hypocrite. He sees the speck in his brother's eye, but he totally ignores the beam, the big log that's in his own eye. And so what he's doing is effectively putting himself in the place of God. Is he not? By teaching others, but not teaching himself. Because who is the only one who doesn't need to be taught anything? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 and 14. 
Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It's a rhetorical question or a series of rhetorical questions. In other words, nobody. Nobody teaches the Lord because he knows all. He's omniscient. And we see very interestingly that Christ in his divine nature also didn't need to be taught anything. In his humanity, he did. He grew in knowledge and wisdom and stature with God and with men. We're told that. But in his divinity, he knew all. He was able to read the hearts of men. In John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, that familiar exchange, he says in verse 11 this, Most assuredly, or amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you, speaking to Nicodemus, do not receive our witness. You see, when the rabbis taught, they taught on the authority of other rabbis. A rabbi would speak, and they would say, Amen. They would quote each other as their source of authority, much like how students today, when writing a paper, would uh, create a bibliography in order to give credit to the sources they cite. And so they'd say, Amen, after a rabbi spoke to say, we give our approval. That's right. Let it be so. But Christ begins his sentence with amen, amen, most assuredly. Why? Because he is establishing that he is the authority. He does not appeal to any other authority apart from himself because he is God and the truth is in Jesus Christ. He is the source of all truth. And so he speaks that which he knows and has seen by firsthand experience, not secondhand experience. God is not taught truth. He reveals it to others. But these Jews, when they taught others, they didn't teach themselves. They put themselves in the place of God. And this is because they were spiritually blind and hard-hearted. That's why Christ warned his disciples. He said, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe as concerning the Mosaic law, that do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and they don't do. They're hypocrites. Our brother, Matthew Henry, whom we love to quote, said this, the greatest obstructors of the success of the word are those whose bad lives contradict their good doctrine, who in the pulpit preach so well that it's a pity they should ever come out, and out of the pulpit live so ill that it's a pity they should ever come in. You see, a person's testimony is only as good as the life that they live to back it up. The word of God is meant to be heard and obeyed, not only heard. Otherwise, it appears powerless, right? The hypocrite is one who pretends to be what he is not. The word means, we've talked about this, one who wears a mask, one who pretends to be someone he's not. He's a faker. He is not the genuine article. He is not regenerate. We, brothers and sisters, must be willing to self-examine to apply the teaching of the word of God first to ourselves before we dare teach it to someone else. If I don't preach these messages first to myself, I have no right to bring these messages to you. So the first point is this, the hypocrite always fails to self-examine. It's important that we self-examine because it's a test of being in the faith. 
The second reason we must self-examine is this. It's possible to keep the letter of the law while breaking the spirit of the law. It's possible to keep the letter, but break the spirit. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal, Paul asks? Preach, kiriso, it means to herald and proclaim. And so he moves from teaching to preaching. Now, um, as most of you know, I'm pretty new at this, and so I certainly don't pretend to be an expert on preaching. But I can tell you that my understanding of the difference between teaching and preaching is this, urgency, urgency. With teaching, teaching is focused on instruction. Teaching is focused on um, didactics, and it can be done in a private setting. But preaching is focused on urging others to action based on the word, to stir the hearts to take action by the truth of God, and to do it in a public forum like this for all to see. So Paul is ratcheting up his argument here. He's saying not only do these Jews teach, but they preach, they herald, they exclaim, they hold this forth as the truth. And what is it that they're preaching? Only this, that a man should not steal. That a man should not steal. Klepto is the Greek word. Sounds like kleptomania, right? Somebody who just can't help taking things that don't belong to them themselves. So that's really the idea, to take away, and to take away by stealth, in a crafty way, that which belongs to another. Why? For personal gain. There's a, a definition of stealing. So the question is this, how did they steal? How did they steal? Well, turn to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel 22. Let's look at verse 12. <clears throat> Ezekiel 22, verse 12. In you, that is, in Jerusalem, they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. Behold, therefore, I beat my fists at the dishonest profit which you have made, and at the bloodshed which has been in your midst. You see, usury was not allowed among the people of God. Usury is to loan out money for interest, like money lenders would do. God said, you're not allowed to do this. In Exodus 22, he said, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Why? Because the poor must not be exploited. They were to be rather protected, helped. Actually, God's intention with his people has always been to bless his people so that he provides all their needs. Think about this, loved ones. If that's the case, then there would have been no need to borrow, right? Because all their needs are met by God. And that was especially true in the agrarian society in which Israel lived but extortion was never allowed. Usury was never allowed, charging interest. And extortion was never allowed, which is to exact more than is owed, to mark up the price, if you will. That was a form of oppression. That was a form of fraud. It was cheating. And so how did they steal? Well, they stole from men by extortion, by dishonest gain. 
And how was that happening? Well, Israel was extorting the weak. Social injustice was being committed by God's people toward God's people who were weak and who needed defense, who needed protection. And do you know who the worst offenders were? The worst offenders, look at verse 23 of the same chapter, Ezekiel 22. And the word of the Lord came to be saying, son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken." The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppress the stranger. So who were those who were the worst offenders? The leadership. The leadership. It was the prophets, the priests, the princes who were extorting the people, preying on the weak as a lion would devour its prey. Merciless. Do you remember when the Lord indicted the Pharisees for devouring widows' houses in the New Testament in Matthew 23? Devouring widows' houses. What does that mean? Well, they were exploiting widows. They were preying on those who were the weakest in society, those who were women and those who had lost their husbands, who were their protectors, their helpers. And they did so in a number of ways, including trying to earn their trust, so that they could um, make their way into their good graces, if you will, and ultimately inherit their estates, enrich themselves, charge money for services that they would bring, including the word of God. Incidentally, the largest contributors today to the so-called Christian TV networks that have worldwide reach, and I won't name them, but you know who they are. You know who they are? The largest contributors to those networks? Widows. And those networks know that. Their leadership know it. And so their messaging is targeted to them to compel them to give, believing that they're contributing to God's cause when in reality they're supporting lies. Thus says the Lord when the Lord has not actually spoken or he has not spoken in that way. He doesn't mean that. And you remember in Jesus' day, he cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple on two different occasions. Some people read about these um, occasions and they're listed in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 21 and Mark 11 and Luke 19 and also in John chapter 2. And some people kind of conflate all of them into one um, Event. There are actually two events. In John chapter 2, Jesus comes at the beginning of his ministry. 
to the temple to cleanse the temple, to purge it. And then in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he comes at the end of his ministry, right after the triumphal entry. And what does he do? Listen to this account in Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. Matthew 21, 12 and 13. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You see, he was accusing them of stealing. What was happening? Well, pilgrims would come to Jerusalem. They would come to the temple to pray, to learn of the God of Israel. And upon entry to the temple, they had to pay what was called the temple tax. But that tax was not payable with the Roman denomination, the Roman coin, because it bore the emperor's image. And so we have the, the money changers who are converting these coins to Jewish coins, the shekel, which were acceptable to pay the temple tax. And guess what was happening with those money changers? Extortion, charging premiums for their services. Okay, so once they paid the temple tax, they came in. These pilgrims then could purchase animals, sacrificial animals like doves that had been inspected by the high priest and that were approved as quote unquote clean for sacrifice. Think about it. If you were traveling a great distance as a pilgrim, it's convenient and much easier to just purchase a couple of doves there at the temple rather than bring your animals with you, right? So we had those who were buying and selling and those who were selling these animals. And guess what? Again, they were extorting money for the convenience. What's interesting is when you look at the law and what God prescribed as acceptable sacrifices, it was the poor who were allowed to sacrifice two turtle doves or two young pigeons, those who couldn't afford a lamb. So what was primarily the target or who primarily was the target of the extortion in the temple? It was the poor. It was the poor. And added to that, the commerce was happening in the court of the Gentiles, which was reserved for prayer. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56 in the passage I just read in Matthew 21, where he says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. See, God wanted all the nations to come to the temple to see what the God of Israel was like and to have a place, their own courtyard, the outer courtyard, where they could pray. And it was precisely there that this extortion, this commerce was taking place, which Jesus found so reprehensible. And that's why he turned over their tables. And he said, you guys are a bunch of thieves. So when Paul says in Romans 2.21, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? These oppressions we're talking about were certainly in view. That is the letter of the law that, with regard to stealing. But let's dig a little bit deeper. How else did they steal? Well, they stole from men by lying to them, by lying to them. The Pharisees and the Jewish leadership misled the people by lying to them. Listen again to Ezekiel 22, verse 28. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. They were prophets for hire. They spoke in the name of the Lord, but the word they spoke was lies. 
And you may be asking yourself, I don't quite see the relationship between lying and robbery. Think about it this way. Liars rob people of the truth, don't they? It's another form of theft. When Jesus said that the Pharisees made their converts, quote, twofold children of hell, it's because they were robbing people of the truth. They taught a works-based salvation, which could never save, which obscured the true way of salvation, and at the same time, won them to a lie, which would damn their souls. Twofold children of hell. They lied. And I believe this is another aspect of what Jesus meant when he said, you Pharisees have devoured widows' houses. Think about it. The Pharisees, they were the sons of those who had murdered the prophets. Jesus says that in Matthew 23. What does that mean? Well, they had made many widows in Israel in the Old Testament by murdering their husbands, literally murdering their husbands. So they robbed these women of their husbands. But they also devoured widows by deceiving their souls with lies that condemn a soul to eternal lostness in hell. See, that's the spirit of what's going on here. Jesus said something interesting about thieves in John chapter 10 that will sound very familiar. He said this. He said the thief, thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's John 10.10. 10. Who are these thieves? Well, in the context of John 10, they're false shepherds. They're false teachers. Those who appear to be sheep, but they're actually wolves. And who is behind these false shepherds, these thieves? None other than the master thief himself, whom Jesus calls the father of lies, and the one who Jesus says was a murderer from the beginning. We're talking about the devil, Satan. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So rather than give, these false shepherds steal. Rather than revive, they kill. Rather than build up, they destroy. And what are they stealing, killing, and destroying? The truth. And anyone who falls prey to their deceptions. They are set on oppressing the weak. Those who are unstable. Those who are deceived. All those, in other words, who don't know the voice of the good shepherd and who follow the stranger instead. See, God's sheep, in contrast, they, they're led by the good shepherd. We are led by him because we hear his voice. We recognize it and we follow him. We don't follow the voice of a stranger because it's not the voice of truth. Do you know what God thinks about spiritual thieves? Turn to Galatians chapter 1. With me, Galatians chapter 1. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says this to the Galatian church. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be, what? Accursed. Accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Brothers and sisters, preaching another gospel is lying. It's theft. It's stealing the truth from another person. This is the one true gospel. The one that Paul delivered to us, us, which he said was of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. He said this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, 
and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the truth. They taught another gospel, a gospel of self-righteousness and works. See, any distortion, any lie is accursed. Why? Because it leads people to hell. That's what God thinks of false teachers and false message. It is anathema, cursed. Peter also warns the false teachers in his second letter in 2 Peter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Listen to Peter, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. How are the people exploited, according to Peter? By deceptive words, by lies. So stealing can be a literal exploitation of people in taking by stealth, what does not belong to you for your own personal gain. But it can also be lying and deception, spiritual exploitation, which is to violate the spirit of God's law. So again, second point here is it's possible to keep the letter of the law while breaking the spirit of the law. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Look at verse 22 now of Romans, back to Romans chapter 2. Verse 22, you who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Let's take the first half of this. You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Adultery, michevo in Greek, it means literally to join oneself unlawfully to another person's spouse. To join oneself unlawfully to another's spouse. And... Like the rest of scripture, the Jews had distorted this. They distorted God's intention for marriage, which has always been one man and one woman in covenant relationship for life. What they did is they misinterpreted God's instruction concerning divorce in Deuteronomy 24. And they said that God, excuse me, that Moses commanded, that he mandated Divorce when a woman no longer finds favor in her husband's eyes. <laughs> and they came up with all kinds of ridiculous cases, like if she burns my dinner, I'm giving her a certificate of divorce. She's no longer acceptable in my eyes. And in Matthew 19, Jesus takes up this issue and he, he corrects them and he shows them that Moses did not ever command or mandate divorce. Rather, he permitted divorce, and for a very specific reason, because of the hardness of their hearts. Listen to Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9. Jesus, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And Jesus just got done saying, if you back up to verse 5, 
that the reason a man will leave his father and mother is to be joined to his wife and that the two shall become one flesh, indissoluble, in union. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So clearly you understand God hates divorce. His desire is always, always for reconciliation, for forgiveness and for restoration after a demonstration of unfaithfulness. There is never a command for divorce, but only an allowance in the case of sexual immorality and hard-heartedness where, where the parties refuse to forgive each other and to reconcile. And so Paul puts this question to the Jews, you who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And their answer would have been, no, I don't. <laughs> because they're thinking in terms of the letter of the law, right? You know, there are Christians who are very proud of how long they've stayed married to their spouse. Um, and don't get me wrong, commitment in marriage is a wonderful thing. And we honor marriages that are long and faithful because it's so rare these days, right? The divorce rate is through the roof. Just, it looks just like the world. The church and the world look no different when you look at the divorce rate. But I'm talking about those who use marriage as a badge of honor for themselves, it's never about God's faithfulness to them in keeping them together, but only about their sheer willpower and their determination to stay married. And a point, it's really a point of boasting and pride. And yet, here's the question. How many of those men have, during their decades of marriage, while remaining faithful in not physically leaving their wife or cheating on them, have been unfaithful to their wives in their minds and hearts? We must remember what Jesus said is the spirit behind this command not to commit adultery. He said, anyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart already. Husbands, have we recognized that this in ourselves? Have we recognized this in ourselves and have we repented of this heinous sin? Surely the Lord sees it every time we violate this command. Have you ever thought why the Lord hates adultery so much? Listen to Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Jeremiah, in fact, let's turn there. Jeremiah 5, 7 and 8. Mm. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not God's. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. What is going on here in this text? God is saying that backsliding Israel has forsaken him. They've left him and instead they've turned to idols. This is what God is equating with adultery. This is spiritual adultery, loved ones. Why is God equating um, idolatry with adultery? Because God was a husband to Israel. He was a faithful husband, is a faithful husband. And in leaving him and joining themselves to idols, they are joining themselves unlawfully to another spouse. They are departing from their faithful husband. 
So you see, in spirit, at its core, adultery is to forsake the Lord and to join oneself to idols. Spiritual adultery. Now turn over a page to chapter 9 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9. Just starting at verse 1, we'll read the first six verses. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They're not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they don't know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother for every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. They're all adulterers. They're all liars, and they all listen to the lies of their neighbor rather than the truth from their husband, the Lord. They've departed from the Lord. And how does God respond to Israel's adultery? Now flip over another page or two to Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah 13, look at verse 24. Therefore, I will scatter, I will scatter them like stubble, that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lustful nayings, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem, Will you still not be made clean? See, God is bringing judgment on his people for their adultery. And he equates their adultery with trusting in lies, with joining themselves to idols, with uh, abominations on the hills and the fields. That's a reference to the high places that Israel set up where they worshiped false gods. They've departed from the Lord. They've left their husband. They're all adulterers. And so God brings his judgment. And Jeremiah is going to live to see the fulfillment of God's judgment on Judah when she's carried away in captivity to Babylon in several waves, ending in 586 BC when the city is finally burned and leveled. Okay, now stay with me. Go to James chapter 4, New Testament. James. Chapter four, verse one, where do wars and fighting and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, James is speaking to brethren, to Christians. And he's saying anyone who's a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Anyone who joins himself to idols is an adulterer. They've departed from their husband. So let me ask this question again that Paul asks in Romans 2. You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And if we're honest, the answer is yes. We've all departed from the Lord and have preferred lies to the truth. Adultery is our spiritual condition apart from Christ. We learn that in Romans chapter 1. All are ungodly and unrighteous. And what do they do? They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They prefer the lie to the truth. And even after we come to Christ, now let's talk about Christians. Are we faithful to him 100% of the time? Are we faithful to him even 1% of the time? Every time we sin, is it not the case that we choose to lie over the truth and we show ourselves to be unfaithful to our Lord, our husband? In those moments when we choose our sin over obedience to the Lord, we are effectively saying this. I believe that my sin will bring me greater pleasure than my obedience to your voice, Lord. We prefer another husband to the pleasure of the Lord because we don't understand the pleasure of God. We don't understand that he is the supreme pleasure for all who seek him. Loved ones, the point that I'm laboring here is that we are all adulterers constantly. And it's only as the Lord exposes our sin in our hearts that we see how much we really violate his command. And that ought to produce in us a broken heartedness for our sin. But take heart, loved ones. He doesn't do this to drive us to despair. The devil accuses us to destroy us and to bring us to despair. But the Lord breaks us. He says, is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that dashes the rock in pieces? It is. It's devastating. But he only does that in order that he may bind up our wounds and heal us like Isaiah says. I love the end of this prayer from Valley of Vision titled The Broken Heart. Listen to these words. Give me, this is the prayer of the brokenhearted. Give me perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep me always clinging to your cross. Flood me every moment with descending grace. Open to me the springs of divine knowledge, sparkling like crystal, flowing clear and unsullied through my wilderness of life. Loved ones, he breaks us in order that he might heal us and drive us to the cross, that he might keep us clinging to the cross. This is the life of the Christian, of the believer. We are brokenhearted more and more as God exposes our sin. Thank God he doesn't expose all of our sin immediately in one fell swoop. It would be too much. It would be overwhelming for us. We wouldn't be able to endure it. But he exposes it as light gradually so that we can see our sin, be broken over our sin, 
and cry out to him for deliverance. God, help me. I see this in myself. I see your holiness. I see my sinfulness. Save me. It's a good prayer. Salvation is not a one-time event, a decision that we made some years ago that we cling to, that we hold to, and we, we say, that's my confidence when I come before the throne room of grace or the throne room, excuse me, the throne room of judgment. It's not our confidence. Our confidence is in Christ continually, daily, repenting and turning from sin and coming to Christ and being refreshed by him to know that we are forgiven in him. All our sins, past, present, and future. So in closing, I would say this, stealing. We've talked about two concepts today, stealing and adultery. When Paul asks, do you steal? The answer may be no, if you answer according to the letter of the law. You may be a very just person when it comes to your financial dealings and how you deal with other people. Very honest. But the question is this, have you ever lied? If so, you have violated the spirit of the commandment when God says you shall not steal by distorting the truth and robbing people of it. You've taken away by stealth that which belongs to another, which is the truth. Why? For your own personal gain. Perhaps it's to make yourself look good in that moment when you tell the lie. You don't want to look bad. And in addition to that, Scripture also teaches that all men have taken from God what is rightfully his, which is his glory. How have we done that? By suppressing the truth of God in our unrighteousness. God reveals his existence. He reveals his wonderful attributes. He gives us a consciousness of right and wrong as we've been looking at these past many weeks. And what do men do? All men receive that knowledge. And what do they do with it? They squash it. They suppress it. They incarcerate that truth inside of themselves. They imprison it. And by suppressing the truth, they rob God of his glory. They, they rob him by not returning to him the glory that he's due, which is praise and thanksgiving to his great name. And so all men are thieves in God's eyes. All men are thieves. None is truthful. None is honest in and of himself. What is the remedy for this? What's the remedy for theft? Paul addresses this in Ephesians 4. He says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. The remedy for theft is to work what is good in order that we can serve others. Taking away stealing in any form is destructive. It mimics the devil's work of stealing, killing, and destroying. Instead, what does Paul say? He says, we are to mimic the Lord. The Lord. What, what did the Lord do? He labored with his hands that which is good in creation and especially in recreation, in the new birth for every one of us. That's the labor of his hand in order to give us what is our greatest need, salvation. And we talked about adultery. Adultery. And even though God has judged his people many times for their unfaithfulness, we saw those examples in Jeremiah. He is yet a faithful husband to his remnant, to his people. I want you to turn with me one more place as we finish up to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea in the Old Testament. 
Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea is a very interesting letter because the Lord basically tells Hosea to go take a wife of harlotry and to marry her. He says um, in the very beginning of the letter, in verse 2, he says, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now turn to chapter 3. <clears throat> Let's read this together. This is just a short chapter, five verses. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Just like the love of the Lord for his children, excuse me, for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot nor shall you have a man, so too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Loved ones, this is a wonderful encouragement to us all who are in Christ. Gomer is a harlot and an adulteress. And though she is a harlot and an adulteress, God, her husband, buys her back from the slave market. Hosea buys her back from the slave market for the price of a slave. That is a picture of Christ redeeming us, redeeming me, redeeming you, who are all adulterers. He pays the price that we would belong to him, that we be not any longer our own, no longer belong to ourselves, but we're now his bride, his servant. We belong to him. He loves us. So what's the remedy for adultery? Look to Christ as your great redeemer. If you are his this morning, then he has purchased you and you are no longer your own. He's paid all your sins. Your debt is satisfied. It's been canceled. There's no longer any payment for your sin to be made. And all your adulteries have been paid so that you would love him supremely that you would seek him and honor him in all things, in the way that you live. Loved ones, why is it necessary that we self-examine? Just to recap, number one, because we're not hypocrites. Hypocrites always fail to self-examine. We know that we're sinners. That's why we're not hypocrites. We're not wearing a mask. We own up to the fact that we're sinners and we know that we have a great savior who paid for our sin. And we, we ask for help. God, help us to live in a way that's consistent with your word. We want the light of truth to expose us, don't we? 
even though it's painful. We want the light to expose us so that we come to the light, that we be changed. The goal here is that we be changed less like ourselves, more like Christ. That's the prayer of David, isn't it? In Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good prayer. That's a model prayer for every Christian. Search me, examine me, Lord. Purge me and wash me of my filth day by day, knowing that I am forgiven in Christ. So we're not hypocrites. We do self-examine. Number two, we know it's possible to keep the letter of the law, but totally break the spirit of the law. We have to remember the Lord is not like men. He looks on the heart. He sees everything and he demands holiness, not just in our outward lives and how we behave toward others, but in our inward heart, in our thoughts, in our motives, in our intentions. He sees that. That's where he wants purity and holiness. We are guilty every day, all day of breaking the spirit of his law. I hope that's clear or becoming clear by God's grace as we hear the word of God. This is why we all need Christ so desperately, loved ones. He's not just a, an addition to our lives, uh, something that we put on our mantle and show off. I'm complete now because I now have religion in my life. I have Christ in my life. No, he has transformed us completely. He has bought us and he owns us. We now live for his glory. We seek his glory alone, no longer ours. He's a great savior because we are great sinners. God help us to open our eyes to see the truth of his holiness, to see the extent of our sinfulness. And may we glory in his only provision of salvation, the cross of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, Lord willing, we will um, look at the second half of verse 22 and then take a look at verses 23 and 24. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Let's pray. Father, we um, humble ourselves before you. You are the great king, the great God of all gods. There is none like you, Lord. Father, you are a righteous judge and you will render to each according to his works no one can escape the judgment father thank you that for those of us who are in christ we have been brought to judgment early our judgment has happened at the cross when christ was punished in our place where we deserved to be punished he bore our sins on his own shoulders he was bruised and beaten and crushed for our iniquities, not for his. He was sinless. He was righteous, but he was a sin bearer. He was a substitute standing in our place. Praise the Lord. Our sins are paid in full, period. Lord, for those who are not trusting in Christ, who are not living for his glory, may you open their hearts to the truth because there is a day of judgment coming when they will be brought to justice. And if Christ hasn't paid their sins, and if they aren't aware of that, then they're paying for their sins and eternity in hell. Father, do the work that only you can do in the hearts of your people. 
Convict us, Lord. Tear us and break our bones as needed that we would call out to you, our great Redeemer, for salvation, that we would trust in no one else and in nothing else but in you. Our hope and confidence is in Christ alone. And Lord, grant the joy of the Lord to your people. May we understand that we're living in a new kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy, which is ushered in by your Holy Spirit. And Father, help us to live lives that are in accord with your word, that are consistent with who you are, that when people look at us, they would not see us, but they would see the great God whom we serve. May you receive all the glory and the honor. And it's through Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.